And as you're being seated, if you would take out your copies of God's Word and turn to Ephesians chapter 3. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, that's page 1160, 1160 in the Pew Bible. We'll be taking a look at verses 1 through 13 today of chapter 3 as we continue our march through this wonderful letter to the Ephesians. Listen carefully, because this is God's Word that is for you. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery, hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal promise that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is for your glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's go to our God and ask his blessing on our message here today. Oh, Jesus, we thank you for this wonderful passage of promise that is particularly applicable to us here in this day, in this country, and in this time. Lord, I ask that you would open our minds to understand the scriptures and that you would move our hearts to obey what it says. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It has been often asked, why can't we all just get along? Why can't we be united? These are questions that are being asked by a lot of different perspectives and cultures and peoples. There are right and there are wrong ways of doing it. But those that are most concerned about diversity and inclusion are not entirely wrong. There is a heartbeat in the Bible that calls for a uniting of very different peoples, different cultures, different backgrounds. But unfortunately, the way that we tend to go about these diversity and inclusion initiatives 
will be done at any cost, including the cost of division, irreparably. The reason for this is we need to have a reason for unity, diversity, and inclusion. If it's just for the sake of diversity and inclusion, that's not a reason. What we have in this passage here is the greatest reason of all time to be united, and yes, even diverse, because this has been the mystery of Christ, that Jews and Gentiles would be united together in one body in Christ Jesus. All right, we've got a couple of different points, but there's a few things that will illustrate these points as we go along. A couple of things I want to say at the beginning, because people mostly pay attention at the beginning, so I want to make sure you understand these parts at the very least. The first thing that I want you to notice as we're going in through this passage is that the basis for this unity is Christ. There has to be a uniting under the truth. It has to be something more transcendent than us. And you'll notice the Jews and the Gentiles united in Christ. That's the first thing, the basis for this unity. The second thing that I want you to see, again, which will illustrate the points that I've got, is that this is done for the purpose not to make our brochures look good. But this is done so that we can declare something to spiritual powers, that we can declare to Satan and his forces that God is wise and can bring together even people that by our very nature hate each other, and that he can unite even us. That's the reason we have unity. That is much larger a reason than to brag on our demographic sheets or on our brochures or our websites. This isn't saying something to the world. This is saying something to the spiritual powers. So I want us to see that. And those we will see more as we take a look at the two main points that I've got. The first thing is that we are privileged partakers of the gospel. You can see this in your outlines tucked into your bullet on the back of the prayer guide. We are privileged partakers of the gospel. And the second point is that we are steadfast stewards of this gospel. So let's take a look. What is Paul telling us? So, For those of you that are joining us, we are halfway through this letter. This is a letter to the church that's at Ephesus. Paul the Apostle is writing it. He is spending the first three chapters giving us a foundation for what he's going to say in the second half, chapters 4 through 6. First three are your doctrine. Your second half, 4 through 6, is your directions. What are you supposed to do with this doctrine that you've been given? Chapter 1 showed us that God is powerful, holy, just, sovereign, and gracious to us. In chapter 2, who are dead sinners walking in lockstep with the world, being led by Satan, that by grace we have been raised up to be sons and heirs with him. And now we get to chapter 3. And Paul, as he is apt to do, begins a thought has another one pop into his mind, leaves off for 14 verses, and then picks it back up. We're not going to get to see exactly what he's picking back up until the new year, Uh, but what he is doing here is he's going to be praying for the people, specifically for the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, because there is something special, a special grace that's been given to them. The Jews already had, 
but now the Gentiles are being pulled in. And that's what he's about to make reference to. He wants to make sure that we understand that the gospel is for everyone. And that's what he's doing here. Notice, as he begins, it says, for this reason, now the, for this reason, he's talking about what happened back in chapter 2, which if we were going to go back into chapter 2 and do that uh, sermon again, which we won't, uh, but uh, what he is referencing here is that there is one temple that's being built, one church. It's a living church made up of Jews and Gentiles together, each piece connected together in importance, founded on the foundation of Christ. Because that's true, Paul is about to pray for the Gentiles that they would know that. Hasn't always been told them very well that that's what was to be. But then he goes on and he wants to make sure that he understands this. Notice that he says that he's a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Commentators noted he's a prisoner in Rome. He could have said he's a prisoner of Caesar. He says he's a prisoner of Christ. The world's powers don't hold over him. He's in jail because Jesus wants him to be. Gives him time for writing, which we're very grateful for. We have now. So he's writing, and he continues. He says, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that has been given to me for you. This is a gracious thing that Paul sees this as a gift from God. He's got a special commission to take the gospel to the Gentiles, something particular for him, which will be which is quite a thing, as we'll see in the second half of this passage. But he continues, this is a grace that's been given to him about how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. He's referring to earlier in the letter, verse 4. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy prophets and Uh, holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. What's Paul talking about? Paul is saying there is something new we haven't heard before. It was always the plan, but this is something we haven't heard from yet. When we read the Bible, we need to realize that when we're beginning in Genesis, we have a certain amount of information. But the further we go into the Bible, we get more and more and more of God's plan for the world. The fancy seminary term for this is called progressive revelation, learning a little bit more about God's plan as each page goes by. And here he's saying, all right, we've had the Old Testament go by. Now the Lord is doing something new, something that has been hidden from the beginning, which he refers to as the mystery of Christ. And he says that this has not been made known to previous generations, the prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, these guys that had wonderful things to say, but the Lord didn't tell them everything yet. The Lord likes to reveal his surprise bit by bit. He's a great author as he is unfolding this. But it says, but now this has been revealed to the holy apostles and to the prophets of that day. This is a new revelation that has been given, and that's why it was accompanied by so many signs and wonders. To be able to say, it's like, all right, for the last... 2,000 some odd years, the Lord has been requiring that you go to the temple, you bring a lamb, you slaughter it, you kill it, and now we're doing something new. This isn't Paul who just woke up one day and decided, I think I'm going to revolutionize Christianity. It was not the case. This was a message that was given to him by God. And then if to say, it's like, well, why should we believe you that you're a messenger from God? 
Paul didn't just say it, didn't just claim it like many today do, claiming to have some sort of revelation from God. He backed it up by, all, by working all kinds of wonders and miracles, healings, and, sur- and tremendous survivals, as you can read about in Acts 28. I won't spoil that one for you. You can go and read that yourself this afternoon. The Lord is validating, this is someone that I have sent. I've done wonders through him. And this is what he's telling us. This has been revealed to him by the Spirit. And then verse 6, we get, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, you may say, well, I mean, didn't we kind of know that? I mean, the Old Testament talked about in Isaiah, we mentioned it last week even, that there would be all nations would be gathered together onto the mountain to worship God. Yes, that's true. That was the expectation, that the Gentiles would be a part of the future worship of God. What was not expected was that they would be on the same footing as the Jews. That they would get to say, without any sort of mistake, Father Abraham. Those promises that we read in Genesis chapter 12 to those offspring, that wasn't just supposed to stop at dirt, Isaac, and some riches. Land seed in a blessing was to point forward. Not just the land of Israel, but heaven itself. Not just the seed of Isaac, his son, but Jesus Christ, the seed that was to come. And a blessing for all nations that was to be found in the gospel through Christ. All of those promises pointed forward. And from Genesis through Malachi, the only people that got to claim those promises were the Jews. And those who became Jews, who worked to put themselves under that covenant, submitted to the rites and sacrifices that they had. We could see some famous examples from Rahab and Ruth, which we preached through a few weeks, uh, a few months ago. So it was possible, but the idea of this broad promise of the gospel to everybody, that they'd be on the same footing, in the same covenant, with the same promises, not seen before. I remember once I was supposed, I, I was attending a, a, a funeral of a locally famous person down in Bruton. And I was told that there would be several pastors that would be there and they were all supposed to speak. I was an assistant pastor at the time, so I, I wasn't asked to speak, but I was hanging out with the other pastors and talking. And then it wasn't clear where it was that I was supposed to sit. But I got herded into the rest of the ministers and was marched up on stage. I was sat behind everybody else up front with these things and, and ended up taking the seat of someone who was supposed to speak that day. He had to give the speech from the pew. So, and I just got to sat there and just tap the sides of my chair. In that moment, I had thought I was part of the pastorate, but I was at a second class. But in a moment of grace and sacrifice on someone else's part, I was brought in and being treated as an equal. It was as if I had my own church and was treated as the same as all the other pastors that were there on that stage that day. That's the thing that we can see here. We might think, oh, well, the Jews are the extra special people. They've been here longer, so they get the special work. And then we Gentiles will we'll be happy with whatever's left. That's not the case. Everybody's been brought in. Everyone is on equal footing. There is no second-class Christian. 
And this applies beyond race, by the way. If you look back on your life and you think, well, I've made mistakes that other people in my Christian circle haven't. I've not just like, you know, made some boo-boos here and there. Like I've committed some really big sins. I've committed some things that I don't even want to tell other people about. You're in the same footing as everybody else. There is no second-class Christian. I don't care what you've done in the past. Jesus can forgive you. Not because you were good and you figured out how to turn your life around. Not because you finally got your act together and now you can be a part of the rest of us. It's because Jesus went to the cross. It's in the body of Christ that we're equal. That's the hope of the gospel. It's not because you were born in the right family. It's not because you figured it out. It's because Jesus was gracious to you. Lived the life that you should have lived and died the death that you should have died. And you get all of his record. The good and he takes away all of your bad. That's the gospel. Doesn't matter who you are. You're on equal footing. Again, not from what you've done, but from what Christ has done. We are privileged partakers of this gospel. And because of that basis, that gospel, we've been united to God. Well, it just makes sense that everyone who's been united to God should be united to each other. It's an effect of the gospel. Not the gospel itself, but it's an effect of the gospel that we are united together. So that's our first point. We are privileged partakers of the gospel. The second point that I want us to look at is that we are steadfast stewards of this gospel. Here is where Paul continues here in verse 7. Of this gospel, what he's just said, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. This word minister here is the same word that we get our term deacon from, church deacon, which is itself a derivative of the term waiter, table service. Paul is a waiter of the gospel, a servant of the gospel. Whatever the gospel wants, Paul is going to deliver. And this is according, Paul continues, according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. Paul's not saying, I figured this out. This is a grace that has been given to him. And then he continues. You can almost hear his incredulity as he's sitting there, this surprise that he is the one that's writing this. He says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, not even the least of all the apostles. He's the least of everybody in the church, according to Paul, as some commentators have pointed out. He says, to me, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles, the unsearchable riches of Christ. We spend a lot of time with Paul on the other side of his conversion. But no one would have expected that Paul would be the one to take this gospel to anywhere else. As Pastor Reader likes to say, that Paul was the Osama bin Laden of his day. He was a religious terrorist who tried to hunt down and kill people who were identifying with this Jesus and wanted to get rid of them. That was Paul. Can you imagine Osama bin Laden becoming R.C. Sproul? That's the kind of shift we're talking about. That is grace, people. And that same grace is available to you, by the way. 
You think I can't get past this sin? I can't conquer this thing that I know I shouldn't be doing? Look at Paul. Osama bin Laden to R.C. Sproul to write to us here to tell us that there is hope and is convinced enough to go to prison over it. So here is his grace to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This is a beautiful phrase. Normally when we say preach, it's supposed to be preach the gospel. But here Paul kind of throws us a curve and says preaches the unsearchable riches of Christ. That word unsearchable can also be translated incalculable. You can't get to the end of the riches of God's grace. If you were trying to Google it, the page would never be able to load. If it was a country, you'd never get to the other side. If it was a library, there wouldn't be enough shelves. Can't get to the end of Jesus' riches for you. And that's what he's preaching. And then he continues in verse 9, and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery of God, hidden for ages in God, who created all things. Now, he's also saying, it's like, this isn't just for the Gentiles either. This gospel goes to the Jews too. Everyone gets to be told about this mystery, that Jesus is gracious and that he welcomes all into his gospel to be changed and transformed. And he says that this has been hidden. I like that sometimes God hides things, reminds us who we are, reminds us who he is. And it reminds us that even when things don't make sense, they make sense to him. But yet he's also gracious to unfold for us. Here's what you need to know. And tells us that. Helps us to trust him with everything else, doesn't it? And now we finally get to verse 10. So we've covered the basis of this is the gospel. The basis of this is Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us, forgiving us of our sins, bringing us all equal to God because we are all in the one man, Christ Jesus. Why? Why take the diverse approach? Why, after 2,000 years, do we go this direction to bring the Gentiles in? Verse 10. So that, anytime you find a so that, that's a reason. The why. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, multifaceted wisdom of God, might be made known to the world? No. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What is going on here? First, multifaceted wisdom of God. One of my seminary professors had compared this to being like a diamond. If you look at a diamond from one perspective, you can see these angles and these angles, but you turn a little bit more, there's more angles and more shapes and more things to see. We've seen one angle of God's diamond through the Old Testament. And now we're getting to turn that diamond around and getting to look at it more and more, what this beautiful multifaceted wisdom of God looks like. And who are we proclaiming this to? Well, first, we're going to talk about who's the one proclaiming it. It's the church. That's you and me. The church isn't, doesn't just exist on Sunday. It's not just the building. It's you and me. It's not how well we sit together on Sunday. It's how well we interact with each other on Monday through Saturday. 
That is what preaches, yes, also to the world. But it preaches to God's enemies, Satan and his forces, that says, you can't win. I, God, am wiser than you. As I can gather these people together who were dead in their trespasses and sins, raise them up so that not only they love me, but they love each other. Because that's how we know how we believe in God. How do you treat God? Same way you treat your spouse. How do you treat other people? As we have here. Proclaims to the heavenly places that Jesus is Lord and his gospel is true. Does that not lend some significance to what you're doing here today? Did it just get up to struggle through another sermon? But by gathering together, you are making a cosmic statement to spiritual powers that Jesus is wise. And that's the case no matter how big or small your church is. We can tend to look at churches that are either just getting started or have been struggling for years. They're behind a a rusty storefront door. And we can look at that and say, what's the Lord doing with that? I'll tell you what he's doing with that. He's proclaiming to Satan and the angels that he is wise. And his gospel is true. So don't be discouraged by size. Don't be encouraged by size either. Size is not the point. It's what we proclaim with that size is what's important. Not just to the world, but to the spiritual world that we can't even see yet. That's significant. That's worthy of our time. Not something we just try to see if we can fit in, but something we make our entire lives about. That's what Ephesians 3 is saying. And we see in verse 11, this was the plan all along. This wasn't, well, God tried it with the Jews first, but that didn't work out, so we're going to try a plan B with Jesus. No, in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus. This was always the plan to unite these people. God didn't have a son in Israel, was disappointed in him, and decided to bring in other people. He's always loved you from the very beginning of the world. Do you feel isolated sometimes? Feel like you're part of an out group? Particularly if you've moved to a new area or going to a new school, starting a new job, whatever that is. Feel like you're on the outs? Guess what group you're a part of? And that travels with you no matter where you hang your hat, no matter where your job is, no matter what your class is. You are united to Christ in a body that is proclaiming to the physical world and the spiritual world that God is king. By grace. Through faith. In Jesus. says in verse 11. And he continues in verse 12. Again, kind of overlapping of privileges here we have in verse 12. In whom? In Jesus. We have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What do you think Paul's trying to illustrate to us here? 
It's okay to pray. It's okay to come to Jesus. You've been given access to God. Not again from something that you've done, but a gracious outworking of God's eternal promise to bring you in by his grace, to bring you as a part of the ultimate in-group. And we get to verse 13. Paul says, so I ask you, having heard all of that, so I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Paul's in prison. Prison isn't nice now, and it wasn't nice then. Paul is going through suffering. Paul is going through something that would be discouraging to a lot of people. You can imagine, in particular, since he's supposed to be the emissary to the Gentiles, he's in jail because of you. But Paul says, don't lose heart over that. Because this is the gospel that he's proclaiming. Now, did Paul make a mistake when he says, which is for your glory? It's like, hang on, preacher. I thought everything was supposed to be for God's glory. What's Paul doing here? He could stand to listen to a few John Piper sermons. Realize all things are for the glory of God. Does he not read his Westminster Confession of Faith? What is he saying here? When Paul is saying this is for your glory, what he is referring to is your salvation. This is the most glorious thing that you will ever hear is the gospel of Jesus. And for him, that's worth prison. Because he can tell the Jews, the Gentiles, to us sitting here in Sylacauga, Alabama, 2,000 years later, that you can be united to Christ, united to each other, to glorify God for all of eternity in heaven by grace through faith. That's worth prison time. So what are you willing to sacrifice? Yes, Paul had a unique position to be the one to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Well, the gospel has been brought to the Gentiles, but it's not been all of them. What about your neighbors? You've been given this gospel. No, you're not the Apostle Paul. No, you don't have a unique new revelation that we get to write into the back of our Bibles. The canon is closed. There's no more revelation coming. But there are new people that need to hear about Jesus. There are old people who need to hear about Jesus. And it's our responsibility to go and bring it to them. Say, well, pastor, God's sovereign. We're Presbyterians. It's like, yes, I know. He uses means. He uses you. And wouldn't you want to be a part of that? Don't we love when we see somebody who is a little unsure about how to, where to go and what, what they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to interact with this group, and put our arm around them and say, hey, here's how... This is supposed to be done. Or don't you like it when someone does that for you? This is what we're called to do for others. For their glory too. For their salvation. And for God's. That's what Ephesians chapter 3 has to tell us. So how does this make a difference to us tomorrow? Or on Thanksgiving Day? There's a couple things I want us to say. One is when this passage is preached, we tend to emphasize, somewhat rightly, that this is referring here to this is people groups being brought together. The Jews and the Gentiles brought together unity in Christ. Yes, what that also means is unity with those that you've had disagreements with 
Maybe you're standing, you're not looking forward to Thanksgiving dinner because you know so-and-so is coming. And you know you've been in a fight with them for a long time. What does this chapter tell us? Be united in Christ. If they're Christians, you have every reason to make it up. Forgive each other. And continue with Christ together. And if they're not in Christ, well, then your first job is to get them the gospel. Preach that to them. Now you'll have the basis for being together forever. No matter how far apart you guys are on other issues. So if there's someone that you haven't forgiven in your life, take this week as an opportunity to forgive them. Maybe it's a distant relative. Maybe it's the person across the dinner table. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe you've been arguing for years over a particular thing. If they're in Christ, Ephesians chapter 3, put it down. Forgive one another. Be united. And proclaim to your children, to your workplace, and to the emissaries of hell that Jesus is king because, look, he's reconciled me and my wife. He's reconciled my friend. He's reconciled this family member. We're all part of the church together. If you have not come to Christ, maybe you're hearing all of this for the first time, or maybe you've been in church for years, and maybe just now the Holy Spirit is showing to you, hey, I'm not a part of this group, but I want to be. Well, then I have great news for you, which is for your glory, that Jesus has come to save you as well. And that if this day you put your faith in Christ, trust in him with your whole life, surrender your life to him, turn from your sins, put your trust in Christ, and you'll be united to him. with bold, confident access to the throne of grace. That can be yours today. If you don't know where you stand on that, find me. I'll be at dinner. We'll talk it. We'll talk it out. It's the most important thing. I don't care what other group you're a part of. That doesn't matter. Are you in Jesus or not? There's no fence sitting with Jesus. You're either in or out. And if you're out, it's because you didn't want to go in. Because Jesus had the door open for you. And if you are in Christ, then I pray this would be a reminder to you that we have a beautiful gospel that is meant to unite us to God and us to each other. So go and proclaim it. We have a Christmas season coming up. Everyone is already talking about Jesus. People who wouldn't have anything to do with Jesus at all are singing joy to the world. Have you read those lyrics lately? Take that as an opportunity to say, do you know what they're talking about? He rules the world with truth and grace. Does he rule your heart? There are going to be opportunities all over the place to spread the gospel. So I'm looking forward to our Advent series next week as we begin uh, through the month of December. We're going to be taking a look at the sentence that the angel gave to the shepherds. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. We're going to break that down and show you how to use that as a gospel presentation this year. So I hope that 
You can join us for that series, or if you can't, you can follow us online or on the podcast. And we hope that we can help equip you to serve this God better. So, brothers and sisters, it's good to be with you. Thank you for being here. And I pray that after this, we'll be more united and closer together than ever before by the grace of Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the basis that you've given to us for unity. Not on anything we could do, not on anything that we could impress you with, because we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But because of your grace, I ask that you would help us to love you more and to love others as you would have us to do. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It's not by what we do, Christian. So many folks think that in the South. Reform your life. It's not about that. It's about what Jesus has done. We simply rest in him. And the good works that follow, well, that's Jesus' grace working in us. It's the result of our salvation, not the reason. So, let's sing about that reason.